0: Bone Knowing, a true story of coming to life in the face of impending loss. Chapter 28, Hallowed Time, October 1997, Day 31. Halloween is here, and so is Tom. Joyce came from Santa Cruz to bring River around the neighborhood trick-or-treating, freeing me up for a bedside vigil. I have it figured that Tom is taking the next train out tonight when the veil is thinnest between worlds, as the story goes. At most, he might be waiting for the height of Dia de los Muertes, the Day of the Dead, which runs over the next two days. It's a Mexican tradition of honoring loved ones who have passed over by luring them close to the realm of the living with altars of brightly decorated sugar skulls and favorite foods. We've definitely got plenty of tasty morsels downstairs. After tonight, River should have a few sugary treats to donate to the cause. Of course, I don't really know how all of this works, the dying and dead thing, but I'm willing to try anything that could aid Tom's passage. Lord knows he has helped many a relative from this side as they've headed into the great mystery, so I'm hoping their spirits come by for a whiff of paella and reveal themselves to Tom in the most benevolent of ways. Soft whisperings of reassurance as he leaves the confines of his body to join them would be ideal. Jessica and Eliza have maneuvered their work schedules because they, too, think their dad's time is close. Jessica has come down from the city to stay with Eliza and their mom, a dozen blocks away, making it possible for the three of them to get in as many last moments as possible. Tom's brother, Mike, and sister-in-law, Suzanne, are up from Southern California and are waiting in the wings at Stella's. They came up early in the month when the prognosis was days. The vigil felt premature and had ended up in see-you-laters instead of goodbyes. My parents are here for another 10 days. They'll hold down the fort while bedside circles form, break, and reform. Our home is aglow as All Hallows' Eve sets into darkness. It's the spookiest place on the block. Candlelight flickers upstairs, casting a shadow of Tom's frail profile against the slider drapes, while a menagerie of costume visitors cackle and shriek with laughter from downstairs. Eliza and Jessica are dressed past recognition. Once River discovers who they are, he's ecstatic with the idea of being incognito. A colorful clown midget spins circles around me, begging permission for he and his big sisters to go upstairs and see if Daddy knows who they are. Before long, there's a potential parade of costume loved ones who want to bring the Halloween party up to Tom. I can't let them go. Not because he won't recognize them, though. As far as I know, Tom hasn't placed any names with faces, even when they're not disguised, for a few days now. If he talks at all, it's been mumbling about the other world he visits. Today, that world has been a waking nightmare. The last thing anyone needs for him is to be freaked out by a slew of almost familiar characters roaming about the bedroom. No one wants to end on that note. Besides, things have changed from even yesterday. Offerings of reassurance don't calm him anymore. He seems to have successfully let go of the worries holding him back in the tangible realm of our daily lives, and has dropped into dredging up his eldest of unresolved fears—perhaps even things that have haunted him from other lifetimes. One minute he's being cornered by gangsters, accused of a betrayal he swears he didn't commit. The next he's witnessing the deaths of hundreds of children with no way of preventing them. Deep in my bones, it doesn't feel right to intervene with his visions. I've promised myself I'd listen to such cues. I don't want to impede him while he's hanging in his body by threads, trying to empty as much baggage as possible before he loses the human vehicle for tending such business. It helps to remember a story I once heard about a man who saw a butterfly struggling to break out of its cocoon. He tried to help it by peeling back the silky covering and freeing it. He was a good person with good intention. In the end, though, the butterfly couldn't take off because its wings weren't fully developed, and it died. The man had unknowingly robbed the butterfly of its natural process, whereby its wings would have had time to mature in the challenging course of working its way out of the cocoon's tight confines. So it is with Tom, struggling with panic at times, as he births himself into spirit. I've become his labor coach, like he had been mine through the births of our two children. He's getting to the nitty-gritty of transition, where things can get pretty dang scary. Most of the afternoon now, I've sat with a hand on his shoulder, whispering occasionally, You can do this, Tom. So, no. I'm not about to let Halloween descend upon him in the form of clowns, witches, and geishas, as much as it's another loss to his children. He's in a hallowed state, and our entire household, the party downstairs, and his nightmares upstairs, are all happening at this hallowed time. Chapter 29 Birth Death Day, November, 1997, Day 33 I'm torn. The birthday party I've promised River and Tom's last breath look like they'll fall on the same day, today. Between Tom's sinking features a consciousness that is now about 99% devoted to the other world he's been visiting and his fish-out-of-water-gas every 30 seconds. I can't imagine what is keeping him alive. Not until I start blowing up balloons and Mama's decorating River's clown cake do I realize Tom has been holding on for his son's third birthday. I've been planning a party for River at a nearby park with a big Simba jumpy house for a few weeks, never mentioning it to Tom. If he didn't have names anymore, I was sure dates wouldn't have stuck. Besides, I didn't want to keep him obliged to his body for a drop longer than nature intended. It looks to me like dying gets tangled up with one's will and emotions, the same way birthing does. It can't be stopped. But slowing down or speeding up seems to be an option. Amy and her boyfriend, Brett, don full clown regalia and sneak out before River sees them. They've made puppets for a show and have a stash of long balloons for making animals and fancy hats. Mom and Dad take the party favors, cake, a couple bottles of breast milk, Oceana and River to the park while I stay with Tom. What I really want is to be there for my boy on his third birthday, gathering kids together for a treasure hunt and handing out slices of cake. Mother things. Tom only dies once, so I've opted for wife things. If he could only tell me who he wants bedside, if anyone, I'd at least know I'd made the right choice by staying and calling in his family. Mike and Suzanne drive down with Stella. Jessica and Eliza come by with Louise. Monica has been here since morning. Everyone is on flex mode, not knowing if they're showing up to a bedside vigil, a three-year-old's party, or a viewing. I've called it as a vigil birthday and have invited people to rotate between our bedroom and the park so neither gets neglected. Eight of us squeeze in around Tom on the bed while he lies on his back, hands folded behind his head on a mound of pillows, exposing his atrophied arms. His eyes wander about, occasionally coming to rest on one of our faces with a flicker of recognition and a slight smile before closing off and diving deeply into other realms. The span of silence between each of Tom's raspy breath lengthens—30 seconds, 38, 47, and 55. Each break murmurs of goodbye, and streams of tears arise in response to it being his last breath. Each time he gasps, we startle in unison. I cue up the Ave Maria tape sang by Tom's Aunt Beatrice at a relative's funeral years back. A month or so ago, he mentioned wanting to hear her angelic voice as he neared passing. I dug through his desk to no avail at the time. Then, this morning, I found it sitting in plain sight. As I play it now, it seems to strike a common chord of history among his siblings and mother. Catholic or not, it's impossible not to be moved by the beauty of the song. In fact, I can almost feel myself take flight into spirit with the final crescendo. This, I think, is the moment of release. The song ends, the player clicks, and five seconds later, Tom gasps. For the good part of an hour, we replay the Ave Maria tape and hover over Tom in muscle-tweaking, bladder-busting positions, while counting silently between his breaths, as if they are reverse contractions. The circle breaks at last when Mike uses the bathroom. I run downstairs and grab another box of tissues and some water for Stella. Monica lets her dogs out into the side yard. Our tear wells have drained themselves in the course of the vigil and we begin to get a little chatty, heading quickly to Giddy. Even Stella seems to have spent herself for the time being. Meanwhile, Tom retreats inward and the gaps between his breaths are back down to 37 seconds. It's not happening, I say. Maybe we should divvy up and take the pressure off, give him a little time alone. I'm not sure who is waiting for whom anymore, us for him to pass, or him for us to be ready. Before heading over to River's party, I cup my hands over Tom's ear and whisper, We're ready when you are, my lovely. You go when you need to. I'm still trying to clear all barriers for takeoff, though it really seems like he's got an internal accounting of who's really ready and who's not, no matter what I say. As I drive to the park, it feels as if I'm moving into another time frame, from a still photograph to a movie. I've got butterflies, and my hands are trembling. I'm hungry, not for food, though I don't remember eating lunch. Rather, for the sight of my boy playing, his life moving forward in the company of loving friends and family. For a moment, I sit parked in my car, watching River and his three other child guests jump about holding hands and shrieking with laughter in the bouncy house. All three children are from the support network. Their parents or grandparents have taken the opportunity to expose them to the human side of life's tragedies. I'd like to think, like me, they'd grow to be better people for it. Virtually every person at the party knows River's daddy is not there because he's in the process of dying. I've anticipated the big question. Has he died? Passed over? Float onward yet? Before I leave the safe haven of my car, I've got a coded response ready. Status quo on the home front. Soon enough we'll be talking about Tom's death. For now we eat cake and watch puppet shows. Gears shift and I'm back to my children and their needs. Nature forces mamas to focus on such matters. She's engorged my breast a size larger than my bra from missing two feedings. Now I've got two large wet circles on my chest. At least my t-shirt is black. Guess I assumed I'd be a widow by day's end. Evan has Oceana over his knee, rubbing her back, trying to soothe her. He and Vicky have a son the same age at home, so he's got the technique down pat. "'Hate to break up your roll, Evan,' I say, retrieving her. "'But I need some de-milking right about now, and she's due.' "'What a feisty little pumpkin you've got there,' he says with affection as he hands her over. "'Yeah, that she is. Thanks, Evan,' I say, walking away with an easy distraction in hand. "'People tend to leave nursing mothers to their privacy.' and I'm freed from socializing while I gather my ground and deflate my breasts. Oceana grunts and groans under my shirt while I watch the kids congregate around the makeshift puppet theater. River carries on a full conversation while shaking the hand of a puppet Amy animates from under the table. I marvel at the imagination required to have inanimate objects come to life. It reminds me how Tom was always able to personify anything at the drop of a hat. Oh, how he had me in stitches with such antics. Had. Already he feels past tense. The man lying in bed at home is almost an empty shell. It's difficult to think of that body as Tom when he was so much more than it. Possibly this is the genius of a drawn-out death. He's been morphing into a bundle of vivid memories saturated with emotion that feel quite alive, as if he's here with me. Minus the body. I'm off, and wondering if this is how it will be after he is completely gone, as in ashes, when Oceana pulls her head back with my nipple clenched between her gums. Ouch! Oh yeah, cake and puppet shows, cake and puppet shows. She's constantly pulling me back into the moment. I tuck all my spare fleshy parts back in, hoist Oceana over my shoulder for burping, and find a seat next to Nick. I'm longing to talk to him about all that's going on inside me because I know he'll understand. I'm tongue-tied and no words come. A lump forms in my throat. Now I'm nervous and back on the brink of something too heavy for a child's birthday party. How are you doing? he asks. Okay, I guess. I try for a smile, but a frown wins out. Suddenly I'm painfully self-conscious, questioning my own motives. What are you thinking unloading on him? What if he thinks you're coming on to him? Well, are you? God, I hate that nagging voice inside. It would have me leave myself over and over unless I felt up for a wrestle with it. And right now I don't. Instead of exposing myself, I talk over it in dying spouse lingo though he looks a little confused, as if I'm not delivering what he expects. Nick hangs in there anyway. Words become meaningless without the truth to support them. I feel myself staggering through the conversation, looking for the closest exit so I can return home to Tom's bedside where I belong. Afternoon light descends and the guests begin to leave. The bouncy house guy comes to pack it up and I feel leaden. It's possible I've missed Tom's moment. River is loaded on cake and running around like a wild animal. Oceana is satiated, burped, and happy as a clam. I leave my babies and the cleanup with Mom and Dad and drive home, anxious and guilty. Just as I turn the knob, I hear Suzanne's hearty laugh and I'm instantly relieved. Everyone chatters among themselves in the living room and Stella sits at the kitchen table eating grapes. Tom is still with us, or rather his body is. This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen, copyright 2009.